Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is part of Pathwise. I'm J.R. Lowry, and today my guest is Errol Munez, who I first met when we both worked at Fidelity back in 2008. Errol is currently Senior Vice President for Content, Programs, and Events at State Street Corporation. He started his career as an actor, performing in a variety of television, movie, and other roles over the years. He then made the shift into the corporate world, playing a number of roles in public relations and communications, for PR firms, for Boston Consulting Group, for Fidelity, for Bain & Company, all before moving to State Street last year. Along the way, he also co-wrote a book called Mediterranean Summer with David Shalek, which told of David's time spent as an executive chef on a luxury yacht of an Italian couple. Errol earned his bachelor's degree from Syracuse University and his master's degree from the Kennedy School of Government. He and his wife have two children and live outside of Boston. All right, so Errol, you grew up in Chicago. As a kid, what did you think you'd be doing when you were grown up? So it was really interesting. There was two kind of paths that really interested me as a kid that I, you know, from the moment I can remember. One was I wanted to be a musician, right? Okay. Uh, I wanted to be a guitar player, musician, make my career there. But then the did, other path... Did you play guitar at that point? Yeah, I did. I started when I was pretty young. I played in, you yeah. know, high school bands and through college and stuff like that. And the other path, which is, which is almost diametrically opposed, is... I really wanted to be a naval officer and drive ship. Like that yeah. was, they were competing interests of mine all, all growing up. So, yeah, and it doesn't get much more different than those two. Those are pretty diametrically opposed. <laughs> That's right. And I ended up doing neither. Neither, so, yeah. What was your first job as a kid? So my first, first job was a paper route. You know, right before I moved to Chicago, I actually grew up in South Jersey and it was for the Philadelphia Bulletin and I was 10 or 11. That's the first time I ever heard the word escrow and I could not grasp the concept yeah, to save my life. But the first job where I was actually on some kind of real payroll was I was 14 and I somehow got a job at a gas station, which was also the first job that I really just flat out got fired for cause because I couldn't drive. And it took them about four months or three months to realize that working at a gas station, being able to drive a car was actually a prerequisite. But it was a good experience. It got me started. And then I kind of went through the litany of working in grocery stores and then moving on to working in restaurants and all that kind of pathway. But I worked, I literally have had a job in some form or fashion since I was about 14. Yeah. I have to say, there's some irony in the fact that you didn't understand the concept of escrow and you now work for a custody bank. Exactly. <laughs> life can be just ironic, shall we say. It can um, be ironic. How did you end up at Syracuse? So again, that was interesting. In high school, my last two years of high school, I went to a school called Interlochen Arts Academy, which really was a school with these incredible artists and prodigies, right? And I 
I tried to go there for guitar at the time they didn't have um get a guitar program hmm. so i was like well what else do you have and and they said acting and so i actually got into the school as an actor now interlocking's in northern michigan and i think things were different back then i didn't visit any of the schools i applied to and i applied to i don't know maybe eight or nine schools all of them sight unseen and i was fortunate enough to get into a number of them you know some of which my mother i think wished i had chosen over Syracuse. And I ended up going to Syracuse off the brochure. I thought it looked, it was like gorgeous. And the program, it was, it was the theater program and it was a very respected program yeah. to get into go. And so I went there kind of sight unseen and it worked out well for me. Yeah, absolutely. At what point there did you decide that you wanted to actually give acting as a career a try? When I decided to study acting, and this started at Interlochen, I was surrounded by very, very good people and and very good teachers at both Interlochen and Syracuse. And so I approached acting very much like a real a craft, something you yeah. had to work. And I took pride in trying to become very technically proficient. So I would work on my voice. I would work on movement. I would work on dialects. I would work on being able to do Shakespeare as easy as I could do some modern piece. And um, that really is what kind of hooked me in. And again, you know, my life, I've, I've, I've tried things. I've been somewhat of a risk taker in terms of, of not taking what I would think is kind of a safe path. And so literally, I went through Syracuse. I went over and studied a little bit more in London, following mm-hmm. Syracuse, working as a stagehand, pretty illegally to make money, you know. In and, the West End? I did. I, was, I worked on Caps for a while as oh, a yeah. stage. And I was completely illegal. You know, I went under the, the name of, I had to choose a name. And Tom Watson, who was a golfer, there was a golf tournament on the crew room TV. And that's the name I used. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I was a stagehand there. And I worked in, in, in some other smaller theaters around London and was part of that community and studied with really a renowned British uh, teacher from Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, who was, I think, retired, but would take people on recommendation and it was it was like a finishing school and i knew i was in in the right place when um after six months of working on one monologue opening course henry the fifth she actually said to me um my dear if we're going to find brilliance in your acting you must help as well (laughs) so she was uh she pushed me to to make me much much better that's such a british british way of saying you're not doing well enough exactly exactly did you do any acting itself over in London or just the training and the stagehand work? Just the training and stagehand work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried. I tried every yeah. which way to get myself into something and it just wasn't happening. And that was okay. And then I was over there for a year abroad when I was at Syracuse and I made all these contacts and internships and started working and then went back once I graduated Syracuse and was there for six or eight months. Yeah. And then finally came back to, you know, officially start my career in New York. It's entirely possible that you were working as a stagehand on Cats and my family and I made a trip to London when I was like 18. I very well might have been, yeah. I worked yeah. on it seven months. Yeah. Actually, two stints, probably a year in total. But it yeah. was still a very new show. So yeah. it was a happening. And I felt very privileged to be part of that, right? But then I worked at these place called the uh, Riverside Studios, which was in Hammersmith, mm-hmm. which was really just amazing, you know, hotbed of just great artists coming in and people that came out of Riverside did amazingly well. 
in the industry. So it was a great experience. I mean, it, it just opened my eyes to possibilities. All right. So then you came back to New York and then what? You know, as any good starting actor, got jobs in the in the restaurant business. My first job was at Studio 54, running a spotlight really? that for six months. So I basically uh, landed in New York and became nocturnal immediately and realized very tough to go to auditions in the morning when you're you get out of work at 10 in the morning. So I, I ended up getting a job in a restaurant and worked in a succession of restaurant jobs while I was really doing off-off-Broadway, any kind of showcases, still taking classes, desperately trying to find an agent, all the things that young actors do. And you realize it is an enormously high mountain to climb when you're breaking oh, yeah. in. And it's tough and, and it teaches you resiliency and... Mm. And funny, people always say you have to have thick skin. And I never particularly had thick skin. But what I would do is I would acknowledge that another rejection or another thing I thought I had a shot at that didn't go my way. And I would look at that and I would say, all right, what if anything could I have done differently? Was I prepared enough? Sometimes you walk in, you're either Mr. Burger King or you're not, or you're you're just right. And I've right. had that happen to me where I've just walked in and gotten roles. But back then, you're fueled by just the passion to do it. And you're in a community of fellow young, struggling artists slash restaurant workers. You're all in the same boat. And I've heard so many people say, you look back and it was a really, yeah. even though it was a struggle, right? Yeah. And what was funny back in New York back then, this was in the 80s, getting like a really good bar job had status because you made a lot of money. And back then to get into a really hot place was almost like getting a movie role. And I ended up getting getting some really, really good jobs as a bartender, which kind of put me into the scene, right? So I became part of that, like, New York scene. And I was very plugged in to what was happening in the city and the nightlife and all of that. I mean, I'm sure I've wasted countless hours because of it. But the restaurant experience, and, and actually bartending in particular, because you have to deal with so many different customers. And it was one of the greatest lessons I've had in life in just how to manage both people and manage my time and manage stress. One of my first big restaurant jobs in New York, I was actually an expediter, which they gave me that role because of all the kind of junior back waiters, right? Which I was carrying trays. They thought I was calm. And an expediter is the one that kind of runs, coordinates all the food coming out of the kitchen. I think the most stressful job I've had in my life. And I did that for God, like two years right? Before I was able to kind of break in as a bartender. All of that collective experience, funny enough, was central to how I, how I approach work now, how I manage teams, how I deal with crisis situations. So none of it's wasted, right? Yeah. A lot of the people that I've talked to have talked about how that the jobs they did as a kid or the jobs that they did in college or the job that they first started when they finished school you know, those, those tough customer facing jobs that they learned a lot that they've it's, carried with them through the rest of their careers. Becomes a proving ground because first of all, when you're working any kind of customer service job, right? People are not always fair and nice, right? Yeah. But then you find people who are wonderful. So you learn how to deal with the unmanageable ones in an elegant way, or you try to, you learn, you get a very good sense of what battles to fight, and what battles not Yeah, to fight. Now, it's high-paced. I mean, they're enormously stressful jobs, right? Mm. When I look at people, when I interview and hire people, 
and I always probe kind of early jobs, right? So I'm just curious about people. And if I find out somebody came up like through restaurants or something, like I will, that gives them an edge in my book because I'm like, okay, you've probably seen some things. Have you seen the movie Boiling Point, by the way? No. So you should watch it. It's about a restaurant that's opening during the Christmas season. So it's going to be crazy busy. It's a 90 minute movie and it is shot in one take, legitimately one take. And it's from a technical perspective, when you realize that the entire movie is going to be shot and everybody's coming in and out of scene in this crowded, bustling restaurant with customers coming in and out and all these different situations playing out during the course of the movie, it's pretty amazing. And apparently it only took them three tries to get it right. Are you serious? For 90 minutes? For 90 minutes. Well, they probably ran out of film too, so (laughs) (laughs) they had to get it right. I want to see that. That would be great. Yeah, you'll have to check it out. You're living in New York. You're auditioning. How dire were your living arrangements at the time? Well, my first apartment, I was there for six or seven years, was that it was a studio about the size of what kind of a corporate office would be. Yeah. It had a bathroom in the hallway shared by three people, three other apartments. It was at the time in the Upper West Side when the Upper West Side was a little bit checkerboard. It was a very different New York back then. And it was, I had a pullout sofa bed that's what i slept on and uh yeah it was not pretty i actually yeah. got robbed the first six months i lived there my apartment was robbed and one of the cops that came they came in just to, to kind of do a perfunctory like bad luck kid move mm. the cop walked in he goes we do walk outside to change your mind <laughs> you know <laughs> they were saying why don't you move to the boroughs you know you get a lot more room out there but you know i wanted that 212 area code I, I had to yeah. be one of those like New York actors. And, and I'll tell you, back, back in the 80s, when I first got to New York, and I moved in 1984 in November, the city had a different complexion and there was a really vibrant arts community downtown, kind of uptown, right? Like people like me could still come in and find something to allow them to live, right? And I think a lot of that is priced out now. Yeah. But what gets you through the night and through the day is kind of your tribe of people in exactly the same boat right and yeah. you're happy for for them when they get these little breaks and then you're kind of you know you get a little jealous of it and right but it's just there were such great lessons and some of the most fascinating people i've met in my life came from that period whether they be painters or writers or artists actors musicians and i was really part of that uh, group of people yeah and it was exciting it yeah. was exciting and there was even though it was starving, there was still a little bit glamour around it, you know, and we were all striving for something, right? And the aspirations I had when I was in my 20s were very, very different, obviously, than aspirations I had as I got older, right? Even if nobody wanted to admit it, we all wanted to get a break and get a little famous, right? But the, the group that I was connected with, like, we really cared about the work, which is why we started in New York and not LA, right? Back then, it was we felt that New York was a proving ground, right? If you can cut it in theater. Yeah. And many had the chops to do it. And, and that's kind of why I went there. So what were your early acting jobs, paid acting jobs? Well, my first one was to be a hand model. And the only reason I got that was because my friend was the art director in the ad agency. And then I did it. And because I was working in a restaurant, you know, I had burns and I was expediting. I had burns and cuts of hands. So right. he said, we spent so much time touch, touching up your hands cost double what we paid you. <laughs> so that was my first paying job. 
did a lot of like off up Broadway plays. Again, it was this this tribe of people, and yeah. some of the work was really good. And we would do it because you'd want to get an agent to come. Or the job that got me my Screen Actors Guild card uh, was a Campbell Soups commercial, right? Because in New York, kind of the whole commercial circuit, that was a way to to make mm-hmm. money. And so I ended up getting my Screen Actors Guild card. I mean, the entertainment business as an actor is set up as a catch twenty two, right? You can't get your union cards until you have a union job. Right. And nobody wants to hire you for a union job if you don't have your union card. Right. So mm-hmm. I just caught a break and I, I booked this commercial and it got me my SAG card, which, and then, you know, I, I did a voiceover. I got the after card, which was the radio and television kind of the voiceover card. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit later on, I did a play, I got my actor's equity card. So that all happened very slowly for me. Yeah. What um, kind of soup were you selling? I don't know. I had all I know is I was using a table saw in the commercial. <laughs> that was my. I remember the director saying, "I think the prop master was worried I was going to cut my fingers off." And the director said, "Nah, he'll be fine." I don't think I've ever used a table saw in my life, right? So yeah. the whole time we're shooting, I'm like, "I really hope we do not cut my fingers off here." <laughs> so you had some notable roles along the way, or at least some ones we've certainly talked about over the years of being friends. Yeah. Now I, I started working. It took about seven years. I did one play and it was a two-man play that directed this woman, Charlotte Moore, who was just terrific. And she was a real theater professional directed. And we got a lot of nice notice on that. And so I got signed from an agent from that. And that kind of started the next level of being an actor, right? It went from what I would say kind of pure wannabe or just driving, trying to do any play that would have me to, I was going to real auditions with real casting directors when I started picking up some work there. And then in, in 1990, I went out to LA and I ended up getting, you know, picking up some TV work on some shows. And it was a really interesting phenomenon because the fact that I did a little bit of TV when I went back to New York, cause I would kind of go back and forth somehow made me more legitimate in the eyes of, of, the casting directors in New York, right? Yeah. Listen, in, in that business, unless you're stunningly beautiful, right? And you get a break or you're just kind of wired to be either through nepotism, you're just kind of grandfathered in the business or you were so exceptionally good, you cannot deny the talent. Yeah. You're going to have to just build the career, right? Not many people get kind of the one-shot break. Yeah. And so I went back to New York and I was doing some, you know, some TV back there, like Law and Orders and And I would kind of go back and forth and slowly built up a resume. And I got to the point, which is not uncommon when you're in the body of actors that are kind of going on auditions, where there's a couple of times I got really close to what I would consider a life-changing job. Two in particular, which I won't name, but I ended up coming in second on both of them. And Mm. in those days, TV money was really good. When you get to that point, you know, your contracts are kind of worked out prior to actually getting the job. So you know how much you would be making should you get the job. And neither of them went my way. And I was just yeah. like, man. Yeah. I was like, that stings, right? It's tough to get yeah. out of bed sometimes with that. But I built what I called like a blue-collar acting career, right? Yeah. Which is what I most got, people have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I got, I was technically, I think, a decent actor. When I would go do a job, you know, I would know how to go in and do it. Right. I started picking up a lot of voiceover work that became kind of a money, a money stream for me. 
continue to do plays, did like some movies a week, some miniseries, never the lead, right? But always enough of a role with where I would make some decent money for a while. And, you know, I enjoyed it and I was working, but kind of two things happened. And this was right when I was around kind of my early 30s. The first thing that happened is some of your peers start breaking through, right? It was funny. The one thing that I was as an actor was, which which saved me, I was actually, except for rare occasion, very happy when other people get to work. Even if I lost it and it would make me feel kind of bad for a little bit, I was always yeah. rooting for my colleagues. And when I would get a job sometimes, because I mean, it's a brutal industry. Mm-hmm. You know, when I would get a job because I would try to either work the casting director, I somehow oodled in, I would always feel a little bit bad, right? Unless I got it just kind of pure. Yeah. And so that happened. The other thing that happened... And I think that the closest analog is like youth sports. Your kid's like, great player, great player, 12 and you. He starts getting into high school. And all of a sudden, a couple of people start emerging Yeah, that are just extraordinarily talented, right? And I worked with a couple of people and I knew a couple of people where I was a decent actor. And I looked at them and I'm like, you are amazing. And in my best day, it's going to be very difficult to, to kind of reach yeah. what you do every day. Right. Yeah. And that's for the really, really, really wonderful actors out there. It truly is about being an artist. Right. And when you run into that and you work with someone like that, it's mind blowing. Right. Mm. And I would say I touched the top of my potential a handful of times. Yeah. And when I did, like, it felt right. It felt like this is where I belong. This is what I need to be doing. Right. But it wasn't always like that. Yeah. I didn't have, I don't think, the natural talent that I'm going to walk in a room, light it up, and they're going to say, we can't not cast them, mm-hmm. right? So, and at some point you realize that, and you realize, okay, I can make a living as an actor. I am making a living as an actor, Yeah, but it could be a reasonably small to medium career at best. When did you decide to walk away? Well, that actually was a funny process, and it was kind of accidental, because I was a very committed actor. Even mm-hmm. like in the back of my head realizing this, in 1990, I guess it was the 92 election year. Again, it was, it was half of my life was accidental, right? It's just like exploring and taking a risk and doing something. I had some friends that worked at NBC News in the political unit, and I had met them actually when I was bartending, right? And I asked if I could come and just observe. I was always fascinated by politics and, and policy and stuff. And so it was one of the primary nights, and they let me come, and they were in the polling unit, and they let me come and watch. And I was just like fascinated, right? And they were staffing up just for the campaign coverage. And I kind of got hired on as a freelancer to just, you know, be a researcher, kind of do anything. But that parlayed that year into, I went to both conventions and Mm -hmm. I was doing something called work for the Newswire, right? And basically it was out just walking the floor and walking around the convention, looking for stories, right? Various kinds of stories. And I would get a lot of the Hollywood folks. I was always like one degree of separation. So yeah. I would go up so-and-so and say, hey, I'm friends with X. And they talked to me, right? And yeah. I was just writing these little wire stories. It was basically a glorified researcher. It was a magical year for me because I would work kind of a stint of primaries. There would be a break. I would go off and do like a mini of the movie of the week, right? Or some mini series. Yeah. Back to be another break. I'd do a short run of a play. And I remember inauguration night. Uh, I was in I was in DC. I actually made it on the NBC stage for election night. Oh yeah, and I was doing results from the gubernatorial 
campaigns coming in and, you know, writing little stories that would feed into Tom Brokaw and John Chancellor. Cool. You know, yeah, it was fun. It was, I mean, it was, it was accidental and people were nice to let me do that, right? And, you know, again, there was a lot of talented people there that were all just working crazy hard. So I yeah. think, you know, I think part of it was just the help. And, and I was obviously like really fascinated by it. Yeah. But so inauguration night, we're in the, the control room down in DC. There's a bank of like 12 televisions. And the, the, the miniseries or movie the week I had done aired that night. And all of a sudden, my face came up on 12 screens. And the producer I was working for, he said, what are you doing up on my screens? <laughs> <laughs> so it's this weird, like funny, just really funny convergence. It was like yeah. a world I was potentially moving into and a world I was moving away from. And that year, it was magical. And yeah. that year started my shift out. And again, I just overheard a conversation from the executive producer who was talking about the Kennedy School at Harvard. And I was like, God, this sounds just fascinating, right? And I just tucked it in the back of my mind. And I decided, you know, I wasn't done acting. And I, I acted for about three, four more years, right? And then one day in a lark, I just decided to apply. Yeah. Um, really, frankly, not expecting to get in. But there was an angel there that she kind of was like, in the admission, she was like, well, the application doesn't entirely make sense, but some of it does. And we think you might be a good candidate. And again, the convergence, right? The day they called me to say I got in. And, and on that call, I knew my life just changed. That evening, I was doing a commercial with Chris Rock <laughs> in overnight shoot. It was, again, one of these out-of-body experiences. Yeah. So I ended up, the pivot for me was going to the Kennedy School I was a little bit older and I was really fertile. Yeah. Like I went in there knowing, I said, okay, this is an inflection point. Mm. I really, really got to pay attention. And I worked really hard. And so I remember when I graduated, I was like, this is going to be my new life. And I was interviewing for a ton of jobs. It was like auditioning. And yeah. I would get close and people just couldn't quite make the leap, right? And I got so close to a number of jobs and I would get excited. And then the first job I got after Kennedy School was I got offered a play in New York, which I went down and did for about four months, hmm. which ended up being my last play. Yeah. And then shortly after, I landed a job in Washington, and it was a kind of a Kennedy School grad as well. And he said, yeah. he's like, yeah, we'll take a risk on you and come on down. And that got me started. So yeah. What were you doing in that job? So it was really, it was kind of a public affairs, small consultancy. We were doing a lot of work around energy and environmental policy and economics. And I got a job in kind of a, a small think tank carve out mm -hmm. from the company. So that was my main job. But then I started doing kind of account work, right, which was more public affairs. And I had some like an automaker was a client and I was there for about two years and that got me started and I had a succession of people actually, which was really nice, kind of recruiting me out. And I had successively bigger jobs. Then I went to, to a large PR firm, one of the global ones. Again, I had incredible mentors. The power of mentorship made all the difference for me. Mm. I went to a firm called Hill & Knowlton. The CEO at the time was a, a gentleman named Howard Pastor, who was a real Washington heavyweight. Again, almost accidentally, I was in the office. I think it was on a holiday. And the reason I was in the office on a holiday because whatever I was supposed to get done during the normal work, I ended up not getting done. And some crisis situation broke. 
with one of Howard's clients, right? He had kind of his own client list. I was the only person in the office, so he grabbed me. Yeah. And I went with him. And it ended up that from that time forth, you know, 80% of my work was working with him on his clients. And, you know, it was like learning at the feet of the master, right? Yeah. And he, he taught me a lot. He was very good, very smart, you know, very demanding, which was good for me at the time. Because you have to remember, I was learning how to work. Yeah. It was different than where I'd come from. So I was learning what it meant to, to show up in an office for 10 hours a day or eight hours a day. And I was learning the norms and expectations, right? So from my first four or five years out, it was a dual track. It was both learning, filling my toolkit with capabilities, but also learning what the norms were, what the expectations were for me. Yeah. And, and I had to learn that, right? Yeah. Because my world, like after six months, the job's over and you move on, right? And kind of year two in a job, I'm like, oh my God, is it always like this? Yeah. And at that point, you were what? In like your like th- late 30s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I started very, very late. So I was, I was in my late 30s. And then from there, I was recruited by BCG. And again, the power of mentorship, the guy that, that hired me was a gentleman named Bill Madisoni, who really was instrumental. He was a 20-year McKinsey partner. He, I mean, he's legendary. He is one of the most genius marketing people I've ever encountered. And, you know, he brought me up. They had to rebuild the function there, kind of professionalize the function in PR. And he brought me up to do that and to work with him. And he's the one that really taught me professional services marketing and what it means to work in that kind of environment. You know, first a partnership, but also a fairly well-regarded exclusive company, premium company. The demands, the intellectual demands were enormous on me, right? Trying to just get up to speed. And Bill Bill asked a lot of me, and I was really glad he did. And just like Howard, probably more than, than Bill realizes, like I sponge from him. Mm. And even now, even today, I'll be talking to my team. And basically, I'm channeling Bill with something. Yeah. And his words will come through me. So one of the things that made a difference for me truly was fortunate enough to finding these two people, both very different, but both kind of top of the class as mentors. And, you know, my, my half of the bargain was I had to really show up, right? And I had yeah. to, I had to deliver on my end, right? Yeah. Because they would go to somewhere else. Yeah. And there was a number of great colleagues. I'm kind of a, I am a very curious person, very curious about people's stories and about perspectives. And, you know, I do listen. I was always a good listener. I think maybe acting helped train me to be a very good listener. Mm. So I learned from so many people and not just people above me. I learned from people ultimately that would report to me. And one of the most rewarding things about a career, right? Like when you stop learning, and it's so cliche, yeah. but when you stop learning, you kind of climb into the velvet coffin, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, you're just, you're just going through the motions. So even today, I'm learning, you know, everyday stuff. Yeah. You started writing back in that 92 election year when you were writing wire stories and writing became a bigger part of your roles as you were progressing through these, you know, PR, public affairs kind of jobs. When did you actually start to see yourself as a writer? It was after the Kennedy School. It was, I remember the first week there, we were just one of the kind of icebreaking exercises. We had to do goals one year, three years, 10 years, right? 
you know, one of the goals I had is I wanted to write a book, right? Yeah. Because without action, and this carried through to today, I basically self-identify as an artist who's working in a corporate setting. And my entire life had some form of art going. It's what mm. I was trained in. It's my sensibilities. You know, it was music then to acting. And when I came out of the Kennedy School, I actually started working on a book. Uh, it was a Cold War story. And, okay. you know, I had some great resources. I got an agent. I got a really good agent from it. Harvard actually sent me to Japan uh, to work in a case study. I was invited to the University of Virginia as a writer in residence for a semester. Yeah, it was a great, you know, I didn't really know how to do it. But again, I had people around me and I, I was doing just an enormous amount of source research. And I was about a naval squadron, right? Mm-hmm. So going back to my Navy, it was just, I mean, I love the story. I got very close with the families and but I was slow because I didn't really know what I was doing. And after 9-11, my agent called me and she's like, the market just, there is no market for this, yeah. right? And I was frankly struggling to find the book, to really make it a good book. My agent was very demanding. And she's like, you got to give me more than an article, right? And yeah. she was really pushing me. 9-11 happened and the market fell out for it. There just was not mm-hmm. going to be a market. You know, I was, I was like crestfallen because I had done literally two and a half or three years of work, right? Yeah. I mean, hundreds of pages of kind of detailed outlines and, and it just ended like right there. So I was yeah. like, oh my God. And again, almost serendipitously, a really old friend of mine, my old college roommate called me and, and he's the chef and he's, he's an incredibly talented chef and he's trying to get a book off the ground, right? And was kind of getting rejected in all of this. And so I had the agent and... At this point, I was like, I was so upset about my book getting shelved. I was like, you know, yeah, let me just do this. You know, it's his idea for a book was was really a chef's memoir. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like it it won't be that hard and it'd be fun to work with them. And, you know, it'll it'll kind of be a little bit of a bomb on the, the open wound of this dream of mine getting crushed. And so we actually started working together on it and we sold it to an imprint of, of Random House Broadway Books, the editor who we sold it to, David Shalek, whose story it is. I mean, I'm effectively the writer on it. It's his story. He had worked with them kind of tangentially when he did some food styling for, I think, Jacques Pepin or one of those big chef's books. So Charlie ended up picking up the book and we, you know, we worked on it a number of years. I think I underestimated when you're doing someone's memoir you know, it's their personal story, right? Yeah. And and you've got to respect that. And again, it was a learning of, for me, of what it means to be a collaborating writer, right? Yeah. Because my first book was mine, and I was really of service to his story. Yeah. Uh, so I learned a lot of that. But the book came out, and it did, you know, it did fairly well. It's still in print. It's called Mediterranean Summer. And as you we know, my in-laws love it. In New York. Your in-laws love it, yes. The New York Times named us the top 10 summer book in 2007. So that gave it a lift. I, you know, it was a great experience for me. And it was just going through it was, it's a labor, right? I, I didn't fully appreciate how hard finishing a book is. Yeah. But we got it finished, right? So that was something I got to check off from my kind of gold list. Yep. Yep. Definite bucket list item. Yeah. So, you know, you've had a, sort of a succession of roles. You worked at Fidelity, which is where we met. You went to work for Bain. You recently joined State Street. So you've you you know, you've had this very non-traditional career, right? You, you sort of 
yeah. made a run at a dream career and gave it 15-ish years after college. If you look back now, what would you tell your 22-year-old self? You know, would you say do it again or, or would you say well, go, you know, go the more traditional route? Because of the way I'm wired, yeah. I would absolutely say do it again, right? Yeah. Because the richness I had from that period, some of the people I still know from that period, I wouldn't trade for the world, right? Now, I will say where I am now, it's been nice. Like where my career has gone, my expertise right now, if, I'm, if you had to peg it, my expertise is building high-performing teams and, and standing up functions and yeah. creating something that doesn't exist or to improve something that does exist, right? I'm in a really wonderful point right now where I'm not building a career anymore. So my entire focus is only people in mission, right? And it's, it's a little bit of a kind of paying it back. I mean, a lot of people help me, right? Yeah, and no, it, that's been evident in the discussion. Yeah, I've had, I've had these angels throughout my life, deserved or not, but I've been fortunate enough that these people have helped me and taught me. And I actually feel it's my responsibility to do the same for others, right? So, yeah. you know, I will take any, if somebody comes to me and says, would you speak to somebody? I will always take that call. I will always try to connect people. I will always try to, to give time. And, and it, it's become much more of a service orientation for me, yeah, which makes me very happy, right? In the recent role of State Street, I mean, I'm putting together a new function. I'm building a new team. And it's about my fourth or fifth that I've built. And that is the thing that gives me the single most satisfaction professionally right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, achieving our goals and putting out really good work. And I always tell my team, I said, look, I don't have that many principles, but the ones I have, like I really stick to. And one is quality and quality is on two dimensions. It's the work we produce, right? Holding ourselves to a bar that maybe even others aren't holding us to, right? but not dipping that bar to accommodate, but really trying to reach it, even if we don't get it all the time, keeping yeah. that bar high. And the other vector in, inside of it is on how we show up. Yeah, How are we as colleagues, right? When I talk about collaboration, it's not waiting for somebody to say, you know, can you help us? It's actually almost being like a diplomatic core, going out saying, what can we do to help this, right? And yeah. I try to instill that ethos. And, you know, again, kind of a Madisoni lesson that I've always remembered is I'm trying to build a culture of contribution, not a culture of credit. Mm. As the leader, I will make it my business that the people doing the work get the proper credit, right? Yeah. And nobody's fronting their work and nobody's this and that. But I don't want them spending time on that. Right. I want them to think about how they contribute, both with their own personal efforts, but how they help and, and augment other people's efforts. Yeah. So in that sense, I'm in a really happy point in my career right now. Yeah, which is a very good thing. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, your point about team building, do you feel like your time as an actor helped you with that team building component of your current work? Yeah recent role of work. Yeah, 100%. Because even though acting is brutally competitive to get the job, yeah. when you're in a job, it becomes a very collaborative process, right? You need your fellow actors to be the best they can be in order to bring out the best in you as an actor. Yeah. You're kind of operating close quarters. When you're doing a movie, right? You know, I did a movie in Texas, middle of summer, and it was two months with the same group of people, right? You know, right. six days a week for... 14, 16 hours a day, and you need to work collaboratively, you know, circumvent. It's inevitable you're going to have kind of minor vibrations or, or dust-ups with people, right? But it's 
you've got to move very quickly, right? Because a production company, unless you're a huge star, they're not going to tolerate you, you know, sulking in your trailer because you didn't get your way. In theater, it's even more vital, right? Because it's live. There's no safety net. You rely on your fellow actors to to bring the play to life and to help you in your performance and to hit their cues on time. And if you stumble, a really good actor will be able to pick it up. And one of the great misnomers for a young actor coming in is if they audition, and it's a, quite often you got to bring a partner to audition. And sometimes they'll, they'll bring someone they think is not that good because they think it'll make them look better. But it's actually the opposite effect. Whenever I audition with, with, for a part and had to bring a partner, I would try to find the single best actor I could find. It always made me better. And yeah. my team make me better, right? Mm. There are things I used to be able to do that they can do better than me now. And it's recognizing that and taking friction out and letting them do their work. So, right. Any other final thoughts to share? Look, this is one person's opinion. Yeah. Obviously, my career has been non-traditional. Part of me would say, whatever I do, do the opposite. You're going to be in good shape. But what has fueled me, what continues to fuel me, is to be curious about others. Yeah. And listen to others. You know, everybody, this concept of universal singularity, right? Everybody's interested in their own story, but there's a universality around it of shared experiences. And when you listen and you find it, you learn from them and you see how it relates to your own experience, right? And you find ways to make better Mm. whatever you're doing. You know, I happened to have, when I was younger, a very high tolerance for risk. And... I don't think I consciously thought that. Yeah. I just did. I would make these sweeping moves and I would just have faith. I would land on my feet and it would work out. And invariably, I met a couple of miscues along the way, right? But invariably, my life became fuller and richer because of it. You know, it's what they say about fear, right? Like fear is much worse before you walk through that door. Once you walk through it, it's not, it's the anticipation of that's, that stops people. Once yeah. you go through it, you're like, okay, we're operating. This is good. We'll figure this out. I don't know if there is a, a, a true career path anymore, frankly. No. I've heard people describe it as a career of all sorts of different things, right? Certainly not a path or a ladder or anything you know, as linear as that anymore. And right. the beauty of it is that you can have different careers you know, over the course of your life. And yeah. it's easier than ever to make those shifts because there isn't an expectation socially, societally, that you stay in one thing your entire life. So it opens up a lot of possibilities. And you've had the fortune of pursuing some of those things, right? And not, as you say, some of them have worked out and some of them haven't worked out, but you can at least look back on all those things and say, I went and did it. Whenever I write that last page, there's not a lot of look back for me saying, regrets because I stopped myself from doing something. I mean, I've, I've, I just explore, right? Yeah. And look, I look at people that, that are in the same company for 25 years, and I have enormous respect for them, right? Yeah. Like, there's no shame in that whatsoever. It's a testament in many ways. I just took a different model yeah. and a different route. It was right and for there's me. No one, there's no one right answer. There isn't. But I will say there is something you can do to help yourself. And at least in my experience, which is the guidance I've gotten from other people and paying attention and learning and not shutting off that that learning valve is really yeah. important. Yeah. It is critically important, right? It keeps things interesting and vibrant, no matter what level you're at. 
And when people see that you're curious and they see that you want to be coachable or have an interest in getting yourself better, then people will actually give of themselves to do that for you. Yes. Not everyone, but most. Yes. You've talked a few times in the interview about being a sponge. And you've also talked about consistently in the discussion about curiosity. And both of those things clearly have served you well. Yeah, they have. And it's what keeps me interested in, in life, right? Yeah. That, Which, and, and like I say, I always keep an artistic through line because at my core, ultimately, that's what I am. All right. Excellent. On that note, I think we'll wrap up, Carol. Thank you for your time. It's very good to speak to you tonight. And you filled in some things I actually didn't know before. So that's been nice for me as well. I appreciate your time. Well, I really appreciate you having me. This is wonderful. And thank you for this. Sure thing. I love it. All right, Jay. All right. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.